Good morning, everyone. If I have not met you, I'm Jeff Kerr. My wife, Christy, and I are the pastors here. Christy was leading worship today. We'd love to meet you after service if we haven't met you yet. We've been having some new people join us, and we love that. We're glad you're here. We consider you part of the family. And if you are uh, one of our homesteaders that is faithfully supporting the church and giving and tithes and offerings, I just want to thank you for that. And I was thinking of that as we were worshiping today, just singing about the goodness of God. He's good. He's never going to let us down. I mean, that's one of the areas that we trust him in is in our finances and in just how he provides for us every day. We've been in the book of Exodus over the last several weeks, and that's where we'll be today. But in a couple of weeks, we're talking about how he provided every day for the Israelites. And so I just, I felt like I wanted to mention that for those of you who are supporting the church, thank you for your obedience. And for those of you who are here today, just carrying in this kind of fear of how am I going to provide? I just want, as we've been singing today, I just felt like I wanted to share that, that our God is here providing. Our God is making a way. Our God is the God who provides every day, everything that you need. And so um, as we continue to worship him, we just know that he's going to continue to provide for you. So um, if we, if you have a Bible, and I always encourage you to bring your Bibles to church, we're going to be in Exodus. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 11. Now, we have been in the book of Exodus for about six weeks now. So many great things. And you're thinking, six weeks in, we're only in chapter 11. Well, that's not too bad. Um, the first half of the book of Exodus is where, like, all the story happens. The second half of the book of Exodus is all the law, where God gives basically chapter after chapter after chapter of do this, measure this this far, you know, do this when you have a sore on your arm, and do this for the uncleanliness in the camp and all this stuff. So we're not going to dive into that stuff too much. But today we're in Exodus chapter 11. And last week we had an awesome time with the kiddos in here for our family service, and last week we talked about how God brought the plagues, and uh, God provided a way for the Israelites to be set free, and that they left Egypt in freedom They went to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted. The Israelites walked through. If you're familiar with the story, you know what we're talking about. We we talked about that last week. There was one plague of the ten that we didn't talk about last week, and I said, we're going to talk about that some other time, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So it might seem like we're going backwards in the story, but we're going to talk about the tenth plague, the last plague, the Passover, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And really, I wanted to talk about that today because that is such a significant moment for the nation of Israel, such a significant moment in the Old Testament, such a significant moment, obviously, that foreshadows Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us so that we could be free and forgiven. So I wanted to talk about that today a little bit, the Passover and the death of the firstborn of Egypt. So as we're going through this, and if you're not familiar with the story, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They are being mistreated. And God talks to Moses and Aaron and says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, nope, not going to do that. We like our slave labor here, so we're going to keep them. And so then God, in order to convince Pharaoh, starts giving the plagues. And it's the boils and the frogs and the gnats and all the, and the death of the livestock and the darkness and all the things we talked about. Well, in the very last plague, God announces through Moses what's going to happen next. And here's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible here, the words will be up on the screen. Exodus 11, 4 through 7. I'm in the wrong page. Exodus 11, verse 4, it says this. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn cattle as well. 
There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. We're going to stop there for a minute. This is hard. These are hard words to hear. I read that and I'm like, this, this is harsh. And there's a lot of people in our world today that view God as just this angry, harsh God that they want nothing to do with. And it's because of stories like this. We mentioned this in week one of this series. One of the main themes we see throughout Exodus is this idea of the fear of the Lord and that he is a God that is merciful and kind, but he is a God that is holy. And he brings judgment on unrighteousness. And we see that and we're like, well, why would he, you know, the Egyptians are God's creation too. The Egyptians... God created people, all, all humanity. Why would he decide to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt? And we see that in other stories in the Old Testament. Israelite is going in and they're taking over a city and God wipes out entire cities. And we look at that and we're like, this just sounds like a God that I want nothing to do with. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment because I know there's a lot of people that kind of carry that view of God and it's one of the roadblocks to faith in their life. But first of all, when God is saying that we're going to wipe out the firstborn in Egypt, all the way from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, so the top of the pyramid. I guess that's a pun intended with Egypt, right? All the way down. Um, he's making a distinction here. The firstborn sons are going to be wiped out. First of all, there's a significance here that it's the firstborn, that God says, I'm going to take out the firstborn in Egypt. A couple of things are significant there because the firstborn in that culture especially, the firstborn was everything. That meant the future of your family. That meant who was going to get the inheritance. That meant who was going to carry on the, the family name. So the firstborn was significant. This is God saying, I'm going to, you know, it, Egypt, you've been an enemy of mine. We're going to take you out now and in the future as well. But it's significant that he said the firstborn because if you go back earlier in the story when the Israelites were first becoming slaves in Egypt, were first getting mistreated, when God was calling Moses and Aaron, he's saying to them, the Israelites are being mistreated. And he refers to the Israelites as my firstborn. God is saying Israel is like my firstborn. And so it's almost like he, I mean, he does say it. He's like, they're mistreating my firstborn. Now we're going to mistreat their firstborn. So there's a significance there. And then what happens as Moses makes this announcement in chapter 12 of Exodus is when God starts this final plague where the firstborn of Egypt are going to be wiped out. And he starts this by instituting this meal, this, fest, this feast or festival called the Passover. This is where the Passover started in Exodus chapter 12. Now, if you look on your calendar today... You know, Passover, not today, but Passover is still celebrated today in the Jewish community. It's something that was remembered every year from this day, thousands of years ago. Still to this day, God instituted this Passover as a way of starting this final plague in Egypt. And they remember the Passover for year after year after year, all the way till today, because they remember what God did to bring about freedom for his people. And he gives instructions for this Passover, and you can read them in chapter 12. We're not going to dive into it today. But he gives a lot of instructions. He says, okay, every family is supposed to take a lamb, take a lamb and sacrifice it, and we're going to cook it, and we're going to eat it. And the lamb must be without defect. It must be a perfect lamb. And we're going to do this, and we're going to spread some blood on the doorpost, and we're going to cook and eat the lamb, and all of these things that are symbolic about that moment. 
I highlighted that, that the lamb must be without defect. This is the first moment in Scripture. Well, not the first moment. This is another moment in Scripture where God is saying, you're going to give this as a sacrifice, and you're going to give from your best. You're, gonna gi- you're not going to give God the runt of the litter, the worst of the worst. If it were me and I was an Israelite back then, I'd be saying to my friends, okay, God needs us to sacrifice a lamb. These are all the really good ones that we could probably sell or that we'll you know, use later. This little runty one over here is what we're going to sacrifice for the, you know, it's just human nature, right? If God's asking for this, let's do this. The simil- how, to, how to put that in context today. If you have a dishwasher in your house and it, start, and it breaks, the first thing you do is you say, well, can we sell it? Or no, the first thing you do is can we repair it? No. Can we sell it? Mm-mm. Can we give it away? Uh-uh. Can somebody, will come, somebody come and take it for free? Nope. What's the next thing you say? We'll give it to the church. We'll bless them with it. Well, according to Exodus 12, that's not scriptural for you to do that. You give God the best of your dishwashers. So this is the idea of how human nature is. We're going to give God the runt of the litter. We're going to give God what's left over at the end of the month. We're going to give God anything, you know, what doesn't cost us a lot. God is setting that standard right there. You give God the best. You give God the first. So God gives these instructions, the Passover. We're going to take a lamb without defect. We're going to kill it. We're going to eat it. Don't, and his instructions are, cook all of it and don't leave any leftovers, which is weird. Like, why would he be saying, don't leave any leftovers? If you wonder why your mom used to say growing up, you're not leaving until you finish everything that's on your plate, this is where that started. You're going to eat everything. Don't leave anything. And then he gives the instructions. The instructions are to eat with your loins girded and sandals on your feet. So what they're saying there, if you were a guy and you had like the long robe, if you were getting ready to run somewhere or move, you'd you'd hike up your skirt, so to speak, and get ready to move, and you'd wear your sandals. So what God is saying is this. We're going to have this meal, and it's going to be a celebration about what God is going to do, and we're going to sacrifice this lamb, but be ready to go. Don't leave any food. Cook the whole thing. And be ready to move because when God does what he's about to do, you also need to be ready to move. This is what God is saying. And then most significantly, he says, when you sacrifice the lamb, take some of the blood and paint it on the doorpost of your house. Significant because he says, the blood of the lamb needs to be applied to the doorposts of your house. Because when God moves in and strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, if he sees the blood on the doorpost of the house, that's how he's going to know This is an Israelite, and you will be passed over. The judgment of God, which is coming, will pass over that house because the blood of the lamb has been applied to the doorposts. Obviously, in that day and age, it was very literal. Lamb, blood, blood of the lamb, Passover. But how significant when we think about what Jesus has done for us. This is so, so much foreshadowing here. The blood of the lamb. If you've ever gone to church and they sing songs about the blood of the lamb and you're like, that's gross. Why are we singing about that? This is why, because the blood of the lamb has been applied to our lives and the judgment of God, which we deserve, has been passed over. So the Israelites are asked to do all of these things, eat and celebrate and be ready to go because God's about to move. And then this is what happens in 12 verse 29. I'm going to read 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During that night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! 
leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds, and as you have said, and go and bless me. So Pharaoh, because of this great tragedy that had just taken place, finally relents, finally lets the Israelites go free. And because they had their loins girded and their sandals on, they were ready to roll, right? The station wagon was packed and the, the, the coolers were on the roof and we're like, we are out of here. This is what happened. A great moment, Israel is freed at great expense and at great cost, at great judgment. As I was reading that this week, I was thinking about that. Why did God need the blood on the doorposts? It's not like God couldn't tell who was Israel and who wasn't. If God can do this mighty act of power by striking down the firstborn, it's not like he needs, like, now are we, if it was a typical guy, we'd be like, what did God tell us to do? And is there blood there? We'd, be, we'd need the signs. God doesn't need that. Why did God need them to apply blood to the doorposts or the door frames of their house? Well, he did this so that the Israelites would learn something through this. He did this so the Israelites would recognize the significance of this, that there must be a price paid to have the judgment of God passed over you. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen, but the Israelites had to recognize blood has to be shed and it has to be applied to my house in order for me to receive that Passover or receive that mercy. The blood that was shed to save us from God's judgment and this protection that Israel had had to be received. There had to be a step that Israel took to acknowledge it and to apply it. This was God telling them, Israel, you're not just getting mercy just because you're Israel. You have to apply the blood to your house. You have to recognize that there is a price paid because nobody in this story is righteous, right? Nobody in this story is perfect where God says, well, you're totally sinless. All that he did was tell the Israelites, you apply the blood of the lamb and you will receive mercy. Which brings us back to that verse I read earlier, this distinction that God made between Egypt and Israel. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? There were so many other ways that he could, he could have just magically just zapped up all the Israelites and put them in the promised land. Why did God have to do this? Is he angry and vengeful? And there's a lot of people that read stories like this, as I've mentioned, that look at God and say, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. I don't want anything to do with that. So I said this in week one of this series, and I'll say it again. When we think about God as angry or unjust or vengeful, I want us to not think about that word. Instead, I want us to think of God as holy. When you see God do something like this, I want the first word that pops into your head is God is holy. Holy means perfect righteousness. Holy means without sin, without fault. Now, in order for God to be holy, he can't tolerate sin. He can't just overlook it. Any unrighteousness in light, in view of a holy God, must be met with death and judgment. This is how God works. If, if it didn't work like that, God would not be holy. This is what holiness means. So when you read part of the scripture, and you're like, man, why is God doing that? You, why is God talking about his wrath and judgment? Because we recognize there is a holiness to God that must be respected. That must be respected. All sin must be met with a punishment because he is holy. But I also want to highlight through this story, how many times, how many chances did Pharaoh have to receive mercy? How many times did Pharaoh have to listen to God? How slow was God to bring about ultimate destruction? So many times where Pharaoh just could have said, okay, I'll listen to God. It's because of his stubbornness, his thick-headedness that be it led to this. So I also want you to think in this story of 
God was slow to punish this way. God was over and over again offering mercy, offering a way out. But we see this, that Israel is saved because of what God did. Israel is saved by the blood of the Lamb, and they are free to go. And because, as I said, they were ready to go, they were on the move, heading towards freedom, a great celebration moment. And all that is to say, and all this story is to say is this, is that the judgment of God to unrighteousness is severe. The judgment of God to sinful people is severe. And yet, a way has been made for you and I, for the Israelites, to be passed over by that judgment, to be given mercy, to be set free, and to be saved through his mercy and grace. This is the story of the Passover. Obvious connections to us today. Obvious foreshadowing and parallels to Jesus thousands of years later who would come and shed his blood so that his people could be passed over by the judgment of God and receive mercy instead. This is this is good news, right? I can tell by some, a few of your faces that this is good news. Let's jump ahead to the New Testament. Look at some of this foreshadowing from Exodus that takes place in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going around. This is right before Jesus comes on the scene and starts ministering. John the Baptist is traveling around telling people, you've got to repent. The Messiah is coming. Repent of your sins. Um, this is the only way to be right with God, and then the Messiah is coming, and then in John chapter 1, verse 29, he sees Jesus, and this is what he says in 129. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's keep that verse up there just for a minute. This would have been, for anyone listening to John, they would have been like, John, what are you talking about? You're talking about the Messiah, this deliverer that we're gonna come, that we're, that's going to be brought to us, and he says, there he is over there. And then he refers to him as what? The Lamb of God. This is the first time Jesus would have been referred to by someone as a lamb. And if you're in that day and age and listening to John, you're thinking, why would you call the Messiah a lamb? The lamb is what we sacrifice when we celebrate the Passover. The lamb is what we sacrifice in the temple so that we can receive forgiveness of our sins. This would have been foreign to them to hear John talk about our Messiah as a lamb. He's like, no, 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 no. Lambs are what gets sacrificed. This is our Messiah. So obviously that moment there is significant. And then if you fast forward a couple years later when Jesus is just about to be crucified, you know the triumphal entry that we, sell, that we talk about around Easter time when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and they're waving the palm branches and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the big celebration. If you read that story... It says that Jews from all around the surrounding regions were in Jerusalem that week. And that's what happened in the, in the week that Jesus was crucified. Why were the Jews in Jerusalem that week? Because it was the Passover. Because it was the Passover. It was that moment that had been started in Exodus. <coughs> excuse me. Started in Exodus thousands of years before. And every year since the Israelites walked on out of Egypt, they would celebrate the Passover when the blood of the Lamb provided freedom. We were passed over. This is what they were celebrating in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. Obvious significance there, right? I read that stuff, and it's so interesting. This is one of the ways that Scripture is so interesting to me. This was obvious foreshadowing that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed during the Passover. The Lamb of God, the blood was shed as a way of life to be provided for his people, 
And that when we apply that blood of the lamb to our lives, the judgment of God is passed over. And we don't receive judgment as we deserve. We receive instead mercy. Amen. Our sins atoned for, mercy applied once and for all. And this is the way for us to be forgiven. This is the only way for us to have a right relationship with God. This is the only way to God. There are a lot of people in the world today saying, well, you know, all roads lead to heaven, right? All religions are about the same. If I'm just a good person and I'm kind to my neighbor and I do all these things eventually lead to heaven. And you might be thinking that today or maybe you've heard that. I'm here to tell you what the word of God says. There is one way to receive forgiveness and it's through the blood of the lamb. And it must be applied to your life and to my life. It's not something that God is just going to do for you. You have to receive it. You've got to paint it on the doorpost of your life. You have to acknowledge, I need it, and I need to receive it. And this is the gospel message. This is the gospel message. This is why we're here as a church. This is what this religion is all about. This is what we are as followers of Jesus is we recognize that mercy and salvation and freedom comes through Jesus Christ. So we can do a lot of things as a church, and we have a lot of fun here. We do a lot of fun events, and we love that there's great relationships being built. we got student ministry and community outreach and all these things. But it is anchored in what we are talking about today, which is why I wanted to take a week and just talk about this Passover, this final plague in Egypt. Because it is what anchors our faith. If we do anything as a church without it being about the gospel message of Jesus Christ— then we're, you know, like a country club, I guess. We're just having fun. But what we do with significance is we recognize Jesus has died and shed his blood for you and for me, and it was needed. It was needed. We can't earn this. You might think, well, that you've earned this mercy somehow, that you can good behavior your way out of Egypt, right? We love to think that. There are a lot of religions in the world that are all about earning favor with God by doing all the right things. And Christianity is unique in this regard. We can't. We can't, even on our best day, even the best of us, I'm not sure who the best of us would be in here today. Probably Brooke. You might be the best of us. Even on Brooke's best day, we can't earn our way into heaven, right? There's a lot of people trying to get there, and there's a lot of people thinking they're going to earn their way into heaven, and we have to take this message of no. We can't do anything. It's not about what we do. It's what's been done for us. It's Jesus passing over us with, God, by, with God's judgment and instead giving us mercy. Israel was not passed over in the book of Exodus by God's judgment because they were God's favorite. It wasn't that God said, oh, you're doing great all on your own. It's not like you're doing, you're, you, your righteousness is all that great, Israel. Israel, Egyptians, all the people were unrighteous, but the Israelites had the blood of the lamb applied to their life. Our God is not in the business of deciding which people are better than others. We, as the church, we tend to do that all on our own sometimes. We decide which people are good and which people are better than others. And, well, I must be easier to forgive because I'm this, 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 and I'm definitely not like those people. That's not what God does. God does not look more kindly on my sin than somebody else's sin. God does not look kindly on our sin more than other people's sin. There's only one way to recognize your sin, my sin, causes that separation and is, uh, is to receive judgment. 
And that's what our sin does. But because of the mercy of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed, you are made right. You are made righteous. Your sins atoned for. There's some great verses in the book of Romans that I want to read. Parts of these sound like deep theology stuff. This is like um, Sunday school stuff. But there's great stuff in here that I wanted to read. I wanted to highlight. It's talking about this work that Jesus did. Romans 3, verse 22 through 29, it says this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. There is no distinction. There is no distinction. No distinction about who's the good people, who are the bad people, who are the insiders, who are the outsiders. There is no distinction. Why? Verse 23. For all have sinned. Who have sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and me and everybody else. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We've all sinned and we all need the mercy of Jesus Christ. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Propitiation, that's a Sunday school word. As a penalty, as a payment. God displayed publicly as a payment in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance or the patience of God, he, what? He passed over. Uh, that, ver- that word jumped out. That's in the New American Standard Version translation. That word jumped out at me this week, obviously talking about the Passover. And then Paul uses that word. He passed over the sins previously committed. So I did a little research this week. That word the Greek word that is translated in that translation to he passed over is the Greek word paresis. I may not be pronouncing that right. And it is the only time in the New Testament that that Greek word is used. The only time. All the other times talking about Jesus, forgiveness and, and mercy and all that good news, there's a different Greek word used. But for this time, he's using the word that translates to most clearly to pass over to pass over the sins previously committed. Most theologians and scholars who are way smarter than me think when Paul is talking about the sins previously committed, he's not talking about sins that we committed before we became Christians. He's talking about the sins of the people that were alive before Jesus came to earth. He's talking about the people that we read about in Exodus, the Israelites and the people who were alive, the people before Jesus Christ that the blood of Jesus is not only sufficient for those of us who are alive now moving forward, but for all people, all time, under the blood of Jesus. And do you think it's a coincidence that the one time Paul used to describe this mercy for all people over all time, even back to the Israelites, is the word that's translated to pass over? I think not. I love that. This is why Scripture, I don't know, I found that super interesting. He passed over the sins. He passed over because the blood had been applied to their life. He passed over the sins previously committed. We'll continue reading. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then get this. This is what I want us to take home with us today. Where then is boasting? Okay, where is there any room for any of us to say, well, I'm better than that person? I'm a good Christian. I'm good. I behave well. I do all the things right. I'm way better than that group of people or that individual or that lifestyle or that history or that whatever has been done. Where is there room for boasting in any of this? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. 
but by the law of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So what Paul is saying here is, because the blood of Jesus has been applied and the judgment of God has passed over us like it did to the Israelites in Egypt, where is there any room for us to puff ourselves up, to act like we got it all together? Where is there room for us to say that we're following all the right Christian rules and we're behaving like Christians, therefore we're better than other people? Where is there room for us to say, well, I'm an insider? Look at what he says in verse 29. Is God of the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles? In other words, is God the God of just the insiders and just the religious people? Or is he the God of all people? He's the God of everyone. There's no room for anyone to say, ah, my sin's not that bad. Ah, I must be easier to forgive than those other people. There is no room for that because who has fallen short? All have fallen short. Now, why am I saying all of this stuff? This is not for us to feel like, oh, great. I went to church and pastor said, I'm the worst of the worst. I could have found something better to do with my Sunday morning. I want us to remember the price that has been paid because of our unrighteousness, because of what that should do to us as we leave this place today. We don't walk out of here like, oh, I'm just the worst. Right? We walk out of here saying, I have received forgiveness. I have received freedom when I did not deserve it. When we start to feel like we're better and when we deserve mercy, when we start to puff ourselves up a bit, that's when we lose sight of what significance the mercy of Jesus has on us. But when we can acknowledge, I'm like everybody else. I was a sinner. I deserve judgment. And now I can walk out of here every day free, forgiven. And not only that, when God looks at my life, he sees the righteousness of Christ, that I am now like his firstborn, all the inheritance and all the benefits that come with that. What does that do for us walking out of this place today? We walk with joy. We got a lot of joyless Christians in the world, and this alone should cause us to walk home. Well, we don't walk home. It's too hot for that today. But to go home with joy, to go home with perspective, to go home recognizing there is freedom, to go home prioritizing things. When we walk through a season of suffering, when we walk through a season of hardship, we still say yes, but we are free. We are free and forgiven. To, the opposite of that is when we start to have this spirit amongst us that starts to puff ourselves up to think that we are better, to think that we don't need mercy as, what, as much as somebody else does. This is a stumbling block. This gospel message is a stumbling block for a lot of people because in order to receive it, we got to acknowledge we are sinners. There has to be a humility there. We don't do well as people this day and age with humility. A lot of people are saying, I'm not that bad. I don't need a savior. I don't need saving. I'm just, I'm doing fine on my own. That spirit is running rampant in our world today. That spirit runs rampant in me and you today. And when we have that, one of two things happens. Verse, first, we start to view ourselves as more deserving of mercy, as easier to forgive, like we are better than other people. And most of our problems in our world today is when somebody thinks that they're better than somebody else. Somebody thinks that they're more deserving of God's love or mercy than somebody else. 
And the second thing that happens when we start elevating ourselves and thinking that we know better than God and that we're doing just fine on our own is we read a story like that in Exodus and we view God as hateful or vengeful. How dare he do that? How dare he say that I deserve wrath? But here's what we've talked about. is that we're all there. The more that we make much of ourselves, the less that we see our need for mercy and the more miserable we are. But when we recognize and we receive and we apply the blood of the lamb, the mercy of Jesus Christ, it grounds us, it fills us with joy, it it prioritizes our life, living for God. In times of suffering, we still have joy. It helps us when we are around people that we need to show kindness to, people of different walks of life or different histories or people of different involved in all sorts of different ways that the world looks on or that we might look on with our righteous judgment and be like, I'm better than you. No, we show kindness because we are all in need of God's mercy. This is what grounds us in humility and kindness to other people. We can say, is there any distinction? Is there any reason for me to boast about my righteousness over this person over here? Mm -mm. There's no room for that. Because all have sinned, all have fallen short, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we need mercy. So today, I want you to walk out of here with that, and we're going to end with communion, and hopefully you got a little communion pack. Um, And just watch when you open these things, because sometimes they can be a little tricky, and the little cracker thing's on the top, and then there's grape juice underneath. But why I wanted to do this today, as we look at the Passover, look at the price that was paid, the blood of the Lamb, I want us to just take that moment. In a moment, we're going to take the, the, the bread and the juice together. But I want us to be thinking of this. I want this moment to just reprioritize and refocus. I want this moment for us to just, again, make central in our life the sacrifice that Jesus made. And that's what fills us with joy and freedom and peace. That's what fills us with confidence and security, knowing that we are made right in the eyes of God, that judgment that we so richly deserve is passed over us, and instead we've received freedom and new life. So let's just take a minute. Let's bow our heads just for a moment. And like the Israelites in Exodus that we are reading about, this doesn't just happen for us, we have to receive it. We have to apply it. We have to, similar to how they had to paint the doorposts with the blood of the lamb, we have to have a moment where we recognize we need it. We need it. And maybe you've never made that decision to apply the mercy of Jesus Christ to your life. There's a step that you have to take. It's been provided for you, but you have to receive it. And in order to do that, you have to acknowledge that you need it. And so maybe this moment right now is for all of us to just say, Lord, I need your mercy. I'm not good on my own. My righteousness is like filthy rags. In every way that I try to measure up, I fall short of my own strength. But today, because the price has been paid by the blood of the Lamb, we apply it to our life. And if you're doing that for the first time today, this would be just as simple as saying, Jesus, I invite you in. I need a Savior, and I invite you in. And I confess that you are Savior and Lord of my life. And if you do that, you are made right in the eyes of God. Where you deserved judgment before, you receive mercy and kindness and eternal life. So let's do this. Let's just begin to thank the Lord for his mercy.
Where would we be without the mercy of Jesus Christ? Where would we be without the blood of the Lamb? And as we take these elements, I wanted to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians. Again, the Apostle Paul talking about this Passover meal that Jesus was having with the disciples on the night he was betrayed. And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread together. And then Paul goes on to say, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, meaning the old covenant is gone, the old covenant of earning and sacrificing and ritual and abiding by the rules. The new covenant is all about the blood of Jesus. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Concludes with, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's do that. Let's begin to proclaim our thanks and our love for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us. Thank you that you provided a way where there was no other way. We can't earn it. We can't climb that ladder and do good things, do things well enough so that you will receive us. It is only by the blood of the Lamb, and we acknowledge we need it, and we receive it today. Thank you, Jesus. Let's begin to just praise him and thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. So now we walk in freedom. We were bound in slavery and sin, and we walk in freedom today and in joy and in new life, eternity, eternal life, secure in you. What a blessing. What can the world throw at us that has any comparison to new life in Christ? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand together. Let's sing this song that Christy's playing on the keyboard. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the i uh-huh.
There's no other way, but we have received it through Jesus Christ. So that is the blessing that we have today. So let's walk in that freedom and new life and joy and kindness and mercy for everything that we encounter, everyone that we encounter. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.